Welcome to Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Mine is Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan. Happy holiday edition of the show today. The regular season is finished. We have a playoff. We've got some Heisman talk coming up. But our guest today on the show, Stephen Godfrey of Banner Society. Stephen, how are you, sir? Good to see your face. Hi, how are you guys? I'm good. Um, a little afraid as I just realized right before we went on that um, we picked a playoff yesterday and we have a bowl that starts today. So this is just a completely normal season for, for me. It's just the strangest. This has honestly been the strangest calendar I've ever had to work through. I don't know about you guys. Yep. Yep. I think that's, I think all, we all agree on that. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Uh, all right. Well, let's, we've got a lot of stuff we'll get to. There's, you've had tons of unique experiences inside the SEC covering the SEC. And so we'll, we'll hear some stories today from you, Stephen, but also um, just in, in general, sort of what some of the things, uh, some of the processes that are taking place at both Tennessee with a current coach, Auburn without a current coach, sort of what those processes are like covering a coaching search and sort of the dynamics that play sort of behind closed doors. We'll get to a lot of that. Um, I know you're a huge expansionist, so I know we'll talk uh, about expansion of the playoffs. So we, we can start kind of in that territory, Stephen, with the playoff committee. a mm -hmm. and does not get in at five. A lot of people complaining about Ohio State. I think it's the wrong argument. I think the argument is between Notre Dame and Ohio State because, let's face it, if a 6-0 and SEC champion got left out, we would all burn the universe to the ground. So, you know, do you think they got it right? Do you like A&M better? Do you think Notre Dame should have gotten left out? Is it Ohio State that should have been left out? How did you see those three teams and how the committee decided it? I mean, I think it's a total disaster in general because we're getting – this year was not going to work for any system. There wasn't a single system except, I guess, maybe the original BCS mathematical formula that might have actually served a purpose here. Creating a – having a committee create a, a group of four, when you look at just college football from the widest view possible right now, a third of it didn't really play a season. So it's not possible to to represent all of the sport, which I think I think there's a quiet I think there's a lot of quiet rules that don't really exist in public for the playoff committee. And I think one of them has been to establish as much of a universal look as possible, which is not load up on one conference. I mean, just go back in time and realize the only reason we have this playoff is because LSU and Alabama played each other in the national title game. Whether they want to admit that or not, it infuriated so many stakeholders on a corporate level that that's what led to the actual commission of the playoff. So it wasn't going to be possible. It's, it, I mean, I, I'll entertain any argument, except that I'm not really interested by any of them when you have a five and six win se or five and six game season compared to teams and conferences that basically played a completely different schedule. I'm not talking about in terms of quality opponent. I'm talking about, I mean, it was almost two different sports this year. So I haven't really bogged myself down in the merit, you know, the, the comparative merit argument on, on these teams. I will say there is a growing fatigue of what bubbles to the top of the sport every year. And if it doesn't change soon, we are going to see, I, you know, I'm kind of a doomsday prophet. Like we're going to see a large scale wave of apathy take the sport over in the coming years. If we don't get some fluidity in the brands at the top and the way that we determine what's quote unquote important in this sport. I personally don't have an issue. I'm with you. I think the BCS would have gotten it right. They would have put Clemson and Alabama in the game and we would have all been like, Oh, those are the best two teams. I guess the question I have is there's a belief amongst people that want expansion that that would lead to somehow some more equity. Now, I think you can look at this year 
and say, oh, okay, number six, Oklahoma versus number three, Ohio State. Pretty good game. Notre Dame A&M, four and five. Pretty good game. Maybe Florida gives Clemson a game. I don't know about Cincinnati-Bama, but that's pretty unusual. I feel like most of these games would be blowouts most years. So aside from just expanding, my question is, what are the foundational structural changes, probably having to look at the NFL model to some degree, that we can implement that would that make that would make the sport a more equitable process for everybody involved access i mean legitimate value um my argument against quality of games is one playoff quality sucked in general i mean by and large if you put every single semi and final together you're not getting necessarily the most engaging brand of football since we started this we we haven't we've seen a number of blowouts We've seen a number of seasons in which two, three, sometimes even one team is just considerably better than the other. So I, I would argue that no playoff system in any American sport is designed to showcase a particular quality. And what I mean by that is they're designed for access. They're designed to determine a particular volume of games that represents an, a, a reasonable amount of access for the teams to compete for a championship. And right now, there's no way that anyone can argue that college football represents a, a, a reasonable amount of access for teams that can compete for a national championship. It's just not true. Um, college basketball is a great example. You don't watch March Madness and marvel at the quality of the individual games, right? For every fun 5-12 game there, you, you might see in the bracket, there's a lot of just not great basketball. But we do that because the sell of March Madness is that it's an access point and then it brings everyone in. My My biggest gripe has been that you are marketing that in football, but you are not actually representing it. If you want to come out and say, look, this is a four team playoff for the power five plus Notre Dame. And I think the system is great because by and large, you're not going to have six to eight teams just from there that would represent that. That's fine. If you want to say, we want to shrink it down to four. We want to maintain the integrity of the bowls. Let me finger quote that as, as much as I can in an audio format, because there is no such thing as integrity in bowls. Just be honest. That's what I'm asking you to do. Just be honest. But don't, when you have ESPN as a stakeholder in this, come out and say, here we go, another football season, 130 teams all vying for the same trophy. That's not true. We have shown now emphatically that the overwhelming majority, the majority, there are more G5 teams now than there are P5 teams, do not have access to this. It is not something that they can compete for. Now, we can argue whether or not that should be the case. But all I'm asking for is honesty. I'm just asking for honesty in your brand message. That's it. When we talk about arguing, and I, th I think you have a solid point, Stephen. When we talk about, you know, yes, let's argue about why this, why this is the case and be transparent about it. From my perspective, to kind of dive into this a little bit more, there, March Madness is a great example of how you can create you know, equality in terms of being able to get to a certain point to compete for, to be the best of the best, but there's a complexity because of the nature of this sport that makes this a lot more tough. And for me working inside an athletic department, my first thought, and I talked to Braden about this a lot is wear and tear. You know, these guys who hope to go on and play at the next level, the wear and tear on their bodies and how much, it, how much profitability there is there. But we would really need to make sure as a larger community in sports that profitability is not the driving factor, that it really is equality in terms of competition. And I would venture to say that 
if we even start bringing up that argument of expansion, there needs to be a large representation of collegiate players on that committee that helps figure out if this is the right move or not. No, I, I agree. I mean, they're not being paid to begin with. So, I mean, they're, they're, we're, we're perpetuating this facade anyway, that this is about amateurism and, and, and uh, creating good student athletes, whatever the hell that is. You know, we, we can only keep the farce going for so long, honestly, because as this playoff, like the playoff is going to, you know, I, I can't 110% say it's going to change and expand, but it's going to mutate and it's going to continue to iterate on itself for financial reasons. If I'm sort of kind of going through the keyhole here, um, this sport is not done finding ways to make money off of itself. And as those rev as those revenue numbers get bigger, we're going to eventually just have a reckoning in terms of player compensation, which is a whole other argument. But in terms of the postseason, yeah, physical wear on the body is a huge issue. It's funny because we're facing something that I've never experienced before, which is theoretically in a couple of weeks when we get back from the holidays and this national title game, which is almost certain to be Alabama and Clemson, once that's over, we allegedly have teams that are going to play two football seasons next year. And how in the world are they going to do that? And, and these are teams in the FCS by and large, right? These are teams that don't have a lot of NFL talent on them. We are about to watch the NCAA ask the, these young men to essentially play possibly what, 20 games in 12 months. I mean, I can tell you from a coach, like, like talking to coaches and talking to people and, you know, trainers and staffs, that's just not possible. The reason this season is scheduled the way it is, the reason we take nine months off is so shoulders and knees and, and other body parts heal. This is how we've done it for so long for a reason. Going back to the equity question, like Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, Texas A&M, these big powerful programs and pick a couple schools in a few other locations. I, I guess my question is, is okay, we give them access. We, we create... I don't know what you want to call it. The, the first round, second round of the NCAA tournament that is filled with entertainment. And this sport is entertainment at its purest form. I get that. But what's to, st what's to keep Alabama from still just having all the best players, still just being number one and still just winning all of the games? Like what's to stop that there has to be some other mechanism other than just access that allows us to level the playing field as a cliche, but isn't that the goal we're talking about here is to create more, and I hate parody as a term, but like, to me, that's still the problem. Like I, we can do all the things you're saying, Stephen, but if we do that, are all of a sudden recruits going to start going to Missouri and all of a sudden Missouri and Arkansas are getting better players. And now they're competing and have better teams and uh, have better chances to, you know, does that make sense? Like, I think it's multiple arguments and, and this is where it gets cloudy for a lot of people. Are we talking about quality of a postseason structure? Or are we talking about the quality of the sport? Because the two go hand in hand, but they are separate arguments. I, I, I think that in the example of a playoff structure specifically, if you are the athletic director at Central Florida or Cincinnati or Houston or Boise, um, that high-end group of five team, if one of those teams had – any one of those teams have, since the inception of the playoff had actually been in the bracket, it would have drastically changed how you market your, your school. And it didn't even have to be their school. It just had to be one of their colleagues. Uh, how you market your school, how you hire your coaches, your ability to keep your coaches. Because if you could accurately say, if you come to school X as a coach, you have access to going to the playoff. And then that coach tells those players accordingly. So I do think it would create some parity. If you can actually show proof of concept to a coach, to assistant coaches, to a marketing department, to 
everybody, recruiting staff, four-star kids, hey, if you come to UCF or Houston, what have you, you can go to the college football playoff. Yes, I do think you would see that pull. Is that going to affect Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State? No, it's not. It's not. That's another argument. And that's the argument that I think is a little bit harder to solve because we're not going to start capping anything. There's not, right? There's no trade union, okay? And there's no governing body for a reason. This is free market economics gone to hell and back. And that, that, that toothpaste is out. You can't get it back in. So we're going to have to figure out how long we in the sport, you know, us in the media, fans at large, are going to, to tolerate this before a bulwark is created and someone says, hey, like th- this is just no longer of interest to the casual fan. That's why I'm actually like, I always get paranoid when people make jokes about the Pac-12 because I think once you start losing portions of the country wholesale in this sport, it's going to hurt the sport. Hockey has had to deal with this since I've been alive and I don't want to see college football go the same route. My head immediately coming from the background that I come from goes to, you know, will, will things start to even out for the sport as a whole, as these, as technology continues to improve and there is accessibility for these smaller or not as you know, not the, not the SEC, not the ACC to have the same representation and the same quality of representation on TV. Um, my mind goes there as soon as, you know, these big comp, you know, you have ACC and SEC network owned by ESPN. It's just, it's just a step above, you know, what a lot of schools have. I, my mind goes there because I feel that when technology continues to improve and things are a little bit more cost efficient and these smaller schools can afford to keep up and those and their networks or their conferences picked up on a large scale you know, associated with a large scale network that maybe that will start to level the playing field, but it's hard to say. Well, and I think also too, right now, there's so much, the, 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 the strata between what we consider to be, give you an example. I always use this because it's the economic example that I can best use. Uh, Monroe, Louisiana, all right. It's on interstate 20. You drive about three hours and 15 minutes on interstate 20 and there's Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Those two towns have two colleges. They both play college football and they are both considered to be equal members of the FBS. If you look at the budgets and you look at, and you look at the staffing of those two schools, which are by every NCAA bylaw considered to be equal representations of the concept of FBS college football in division one, that is a joke. And what I mean by that is that you could actually multiply Louisiana Monroe, I think it's like 10 times now before, and you still wouldn't have the, the budget of Alabama. So we have to address that. We have to, we have to take a serious look and figure out. And again, this is why like, you can say I'm an expansionist right now, but I think that we are going to have to have a reckoning of what is the FBS and who is competing here right now? Because what we have are all these G5 schools that are told they're equal and in actuality, they're just kind of supposed to stay quiet, get their paychecks and do the trickle down economics thing. You know, go if you're Louisiana Monroe, you go lose to Auburn, you make two million bucks. Oh, you remember the FBS, you get to go to the Camellia Bowl, whatever. Does anybody how long are we going to care about that? Like, how long is the system going to stay on its feet? I mean, uh, and just to add to that, too, I, I do think that, you know, from an athletic 
department budget standpoint, we could go on about this forever. So we won't, you know, we don't have to go all the way down this road, but that $49 million check from SEC network is a large part of those schools budget and why they are so big. And in addition to boosters and everything else. So yeah, it's just, a, it's just an interesting conversation, but it's one that we could run around in circles about for forever. Well, and, and I think, again, I think you touched on something, Stephen, that I am now, you know, away. We, we joke like, I'm an, I'm not a contractionist either. I don't want it to go back to two teams. Um, and I'm not, expand, I'm, but what I am is a restrictionist and that's what you're talking about. I, like, again, I don't know if the toothpaste is all the way out of the tube yet, because I think you could put us cap on spending to some degree on like waterfalls and facilities or recruiting budgets could be capped. I think there are some tiny things that you could do that, that, because again, it's not just the group of five. That's the problem here. This, this is the issue to your point about apathy, it's not just the group of five that's suffering. It is, it's South Carolina, Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas. It's half the power five too. Now they all could have a chance to get into the playoff if they go 12 and 0, but that, that's, that's a joke we're selling to, to fans. I got to an argument off the record with a South Carolina individual uh, talking about job quality. And I, I, I called it a $4 million graveyard because you're going to make $4 million a year and you are going to die. You're going to be fired. The, the, the constraint, I mean, the restrictions and the way it's structured right now versus the expectation, it's not feasible to win at South Carolina unless you are an incredibly efficient cheater. Um, the problem is that the rising tide floats all boats and that the money that South Carolina gets from the television revenue, like Aaron was talking about, and the just the, the, the SEC emblem on the chest, well, that money also goes to Tuscaloosa and, and to Gainesville and to Baton Rouge, and that's the problem. So in an outsized sense, South Carolina financially might be a better job than every job in the Pac-12, but maybe one or two. And that's crazy to think about, right? The, the disparity between conferences is another thing that really scares me is like we, if we don't establish some sort of equal footing, like it's just going to continue to get more and more lopsided. And I don't know what we do. I don't know what to do. You know, it's not one, it's not one league. It's not one sport. It's these, it's, it's a confederation yeah. of leagues that do things very differently and have different value. Yeah. They're, they're not the same sport. Um, we, you mentioned Monroe and, and Alabama. They're just, they have never been the same sport. They're yeah. not the same sport. And and the gap between the two sports is getting larger and larger. So let's, let's, uh, let's move on to some, some coaching stuff because you are uniquely qualified to have some interesting conversations about this stuff. Try to take people through number one, just, the, the few days before a coach is fired, like, like this is, I, I'm, I'm obsessed and my wife doesn't understand it, but I am obsessed with coaching searches. I just think they're fantastic. It's just like me getting to gossip with all my buddies about like the dumbest shit ever, but I just, I just love it. So take people through what's actually happening, maybe the three or four days, or maybe even the week before a, a school decides to fire someone, give us sort of the dynamics at play behind the scenes at a place. Again, just generic, generic state. You in the SEC, Tennessee, Auburn, South Carolina, Vanderbilt, yeah. all have are dealing with this right now. What, what does that process look like? I'm laughing just because I, I think my wife would. I think my wife actively cheers against coaches getting fired because I just <laughs> I disappear into a phone during the holidays. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's use South Carolina as, a, as like a case study, just because they've 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 had a firing now and they've had a hiring. Um, you know, in in that instance, I, I think I would ask the class here: Was anyone shocked that Will Muschamp was fired? No, right? Like this is something that had been discussed for a while. I wrote, I think, at least two pieces this off season about his buyout being teased down marginally, which we found out later he didn't sign it. Um, 
in that instance, when it's not, it, it's not a complete left field shock. And most of these aren't. Uh, there are conversations that are ongoing in this case, usually now in the season. That's the big difference. I think that, that people maybe don't know is that these conversations start really when like when September starts, you know, uh, less miles LSU is another great example, right? The decision makers around the contract, and I'll be a little bit more specific and say basically the individuals who are going to have to help eat that buyout specifically, they're the ones who start talking first, right? So in Gus Malzahn's case and in Will Muschamp's case, it's not just the athletic department. That, that, it, that would be a very naive way to look at it. You have to rally these funds to, to break off that first financial hunk because you also have to pay the new coach, right? So there's a lot, that all, that's, that's sitting in front of you as well. It's a very expensive process. So once you have the money committed, then there are internal debates about, you know, how are we going to position this? When are we going to do it? I, I personally think South Carolina sort of started the entire cycle, not because South Carolina is that important this year. And when I say cycle, I mean the whole national coaching cycle. I think what South Carolina did was they signaled to the market during COVID, during an economic regression in a pandemic, we're still going to do these type of things, whether you agree with it or not. So South Carolina made an interesting choice, whether you like it or not, to come out and say, we're going to eat this buyout, we're going to be aggressive in the market, and we believe that we have to do this now for the future of Gamecock football, right? So that's the next conversation that happens. What you're seeing now more than you have maybe in the last 20 years is a little bit, I wouldn't call it transparency, but they're quicker to fire in season or agree to resign or whatever the language is. I'm thinking also about like Will Muschamp at Florida. If you remember, they basically said, hey, you're fired. He goes, yeah, I'm fired, but we're going to coach out the season. It's the similar mindset to, and I talked to Whit Babcock about this when Frank Beamer retired at Virginia Tech. It's this lets us operate publicly. This lets us operate with a level of transparency because so many individuals are involved in power five coaching hires. It's really hard to keep that stuff a secret from people like me. And so if there's an open acknowledged search, you don't have to hide as much stuff, right? You, you might want to hide who you're talking to, but you don't have to hide that you're doing it. And that's really, really hard. So you're seeing people. So like Tennessee right now. <laughs> Tennessee, well, we can get to Tennessee in a second. I don't know if Tennessee's following any of the scripture playbooks that they should shockingly again for the second time. Um, second time. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. you short, I think you shorted them about five, five chapters. Yeah, I guess I didn't do justice to the quote-unquote Derek Dooley search. Um, yeah, so, so the, the night the night we drove old Kiffy down, that's when it started. Um, yeah, Tennessee. I will say everything I can describe. There's always an outlier, and uh, and Big Orange is is nothing if not an outlier in so many ways right now. Um, so yeah, that's what happens first, um, and then after that, the, you know, the searches themselves are all kind of about the same these days. And I think people would be really shocked. Like, you hire a firm. And people freak out about the firm. I don't know what y'all's opinions are on the firms, but like there are some really, really quality ones. And there are some ones that I think are a little dubious and just get a nice little, nice little check from the athletic department. The firms actually do a lot of the logistics. And in COVID, that's been extremely helpful and valuable. Um, I know of a couple hires that had to involve West Coast candidates this year and, and candidates in states with uh, stronger travel restrictions. And the logistics of getting the AD or the president or the AD and the president to, you know, candidate X at this airport, that's a hell of a lot harder this year than, than it has been in years past. So search firms handle all that. Search firms also do all active background checks and they're constantly reporting. Uh, and what I mean by that is that search firms are, um, what's a good example? So 
imagine just someone who goes on campus year round all across the country, has a lot of connections and just kind of checks in to see how a Billy Napier is doing, for instance, or a Jamie Chadwell. And they just sort of, they call other coaches like, Hey, you just, you coached against that guy last week. What did you think about him? Like, you know, was, was, did, did he really kick your, really kick your ass or was this, you know, were you impressed? Um, and what they're doing is they're constantly building a dossier, not for any one school. They just want to have this information because that's what makes the firm valuable. So if you're an athletic director and maybe you don't have a ton of expertise in a particular sport, which happens all the time, right? An athletic director, maybe they have a basketball background and they're making a football hire. Are you as the AD expected to make the single most expensive financial move in, for your university and possibly for your state in a lot of instances? Are you going to do that and not be completely informed? And yeah, it's also a way to stretch out liability. I'm going to be honest with you. So I can talk a lot about search firms because in the last couple of years, I've actually been kind of impressed by them. And I think a lot of people get really angry when they hear about search firms. But I promise you, if you want to make a decision that big, you better have more than one individual in the room, right? You know, human psychology tells us that like, if you're, if you're making a big decision like that, considering perspectives that you yourself can't conceive, it's, it's going to be beneficial to the outcome. All right, so then what, what is taking place at Tennessee right now? Hypothetically, you've talked about the dynamics, Stephen, with the boosters. We know all that kind of stuff is taking place. But um, sort of take us through why Tennessee is what ten- – why, why are they the outlier, in your opinion? Why is Tennessee? Yeah, why, why is Tennessee Tennessee? What even are you? Um, it is a legitimate question to ask of the Vols because this brand, to me – just continues to try and top itself it's like it tries to devalue its its equity on the open market it blows my absolute mind um you know i don't i say this with no with no bias for or against tennessee but i just guys sometimes i just can't even put into words the the active aggressive self-immolation that goes on with this brand um let me jump and do this out of order because a lot of people I, I have said like on different radio shows and podcasts and stuff like during the whole Hugh Freeze thing, for instance. Right. So Hugh Freeze like goes out there is very aggressive himself and kind of marketing his worth to various media members like in Tennessee, in the South, all over. <laughs> to to two re- people, to two people on this podcast. <laughs> yes. My, and my response to that is if you're Tennessee are, are you so blinded by your self-perceived status issues within the league that you would automatically just go and, and glom onto this individual with a massive NCAA character history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because he beat Alabama twice and there were like a combined nine turnovers in that game, in those two games. I, I mean, is, is that your value right now? Because I say this all the time and I'm an alumnus of Ole Miss. That was the same team and the same coaching staff and the same head coach that turned around and lost at Memphis and got completely shut out, shut out on the road against Brett Bielema's Arkansas, the same team that, that, that upset Alabama. If you are Tennessee, this, this just, that decision-making matrix looks like something from the lower tier of the P5, like you were talking about earlier, Braden. And the problem is, is that when you pull it back, when you go through the layers, Tennessee, I don't know if it thinks of itself the way it should anymore, or may, maybe it just doesn't believe that it is, that top end job, right? I mean, we can measure programs in a lot of different ways, financially and on engagement or stadium capacity or whatever. 
they won a national title in the modern era, which I roughly describe as like the mid nineties on. You would never know it by the way they act. You would never know it by the way that they've conducted themselves and by how fast they've retreated behind Phil Fulmer this last time with the whole John Curry saga. Um, so we're in a situation right now and you'll, you'll kind of have to guide me through exactly what you want me to talk about because inside and out, this program seems to be actively trying to hurt itself. I, I, I guess, um, cause I want to get to Auburn as well, but I, I do think I, I don't, to me, it's, is there a singular decision maker at the top who continues to force his opinions on, on, on people and try to pull the strings and, and is that person capable of stepping away? And, and I don't know if that's the answer or not, but like, like to your point, certainly the fans haven't helped themselves, but what happens on Twitter should not be, you know, the driving force behind all these terrible decisions. No program, no program is immune to bad hires, right? Alabama sure. can do it. USC can do it. Texas can do it. Tennessee's done it, obviously, but th- there is something different about what they, what's wrong with them. There's a, there's a foundation. And I don't know if it's just Jimmy Haslam. I don't know if there's another set of boosters. I don't, I, I don't know you know, what the answer is as to, as to who's creating the toxicity. I mean, the fans are doing their part on Twitter, but that's not really what's solving or making problems. I mean, if the Wizard of Oz is behind the curtain and has made this many bad decisions, you would think he could look at himself and say, maybe I should let someone else weigh in. That's an interesting thought, though, Braden. Like, what's, is there someone behind the scenes that we don't know about that is continuing to push these bad decisions on Tennessee. So I don't know. Something to think about. Well, there there isn't one individual that you can draw a line, a straight line through in terms of, um, you know, post Kiffin to now, which is sort of probably part of the problem. Uh, Many, many schools that are very successful have ornamental athletic directors who don't really make these decisions. So that as well is not entirely the problem. We'll we'll get to Auburn in a second. (laughs) The, uh, that's, that's an excellent segue. Um, <laughs> the issue at Tennessee, I think, is is it's just, unfortunately, I think they're losing the war on two fronts because we, we'll kind of bridge into Auburn this way. Having warring factions of boosters is not unique to Knoxville. I can name you 20 programs that have this problem right now. One is Texas. I mean, that is, there are so many issues in Texas that go back to the fact that there's just, there's too many millionaires, Okay. There's too many would-be Jimmy Haslam's or Charlie Anderson's or, or you know, Jimmy Rain's or Bobby Louder's. Like, that's a huge problem. So the problem at Tennessee, though, I think, however, was that, that hashtag feels like 98 might be the most acidic thing to your future because the circumstances by which you won that title and the, and the methodology by which they, they, they went about creating that title doesn't exist anymore. If you keep thinking like that, you are going to be Nebraska very, very soon. So what Tennessee is is struggling with is you're in the east side of Tennessee. You don't have a natural talent base. You lost your ability to become one of the few rare national brands in recruiting because everyone became national brands in recruiting. You never followed up. One of the things that shocks me the most about Tennessee is that when I talk to player personnel people or recruiting people, which isn't exactly my world, they marvel at how poorly they develop talent and this goes for kiffin dooley butch uh pruitt this is not one head coach tennessee as a function seems to not realize the potential of the talent they actually get on campus i mean alvin kamara obviously is a glaring example so it's that on top of the warring boosters and i think truly not ever 
Tennessee strikes me as one of the programs that is the least concerned with the future while being so mired in the present. And that's just, that is a recipe for failure. Okay. So I have a question for you, Stephen. I just want to run this by you. Braden and I briefly discussed this when we were talking about, um, you know, coaching searches last week. And I have a theory about Auburn and Gus Malzahn. People have a, a variety of opinions about that, whether it was a good idea or not. Um, I don't think he's crazy enough for them. I almost feel like they just, he's so calm, so smooth and steady. It's like a healthy relationship that he almost can't communicate with them because they're too crazy and they need the drama and they want this like the toxic relationship of the crazy football fan. So I almost feel like Gus is too level-headed to communicate with his fan base. And so they're, they're yeah. lack of connection. Um, I think, I think you're onto something in that I, I feel like they didn't, they didn't understand his consistency and lack of urgency in times in which they felt that there should be instant referendums, instant staff changes, instant reaction to a loss to Alabama. And yet they never really praised his consistency when Auburn ends up beating Nick Saban more than any other program. I mean, it's not a lot. And obviously they, they trail so far behind their, their rival, but at the same time, like, they did, they accomplished something that no one else was doing. Um, I think the marriage got old. Um, I think his offense has definitely ended up beyond the pale in a very strange way. And I think what led to this sort of attempted coup d'etat with Kevin Steele was that when he hired Kevin, the strangest thing and the least likeliest thing in the world happened. Let me back up. When, when Auburn hired Kevin Steele, all we, all we remembered was, uh, one of the worst coaches in Baylor history, which is saying something. And the guy who got his ass kicked up around his shoulders in that orange bowl against West Virginia, when he was Clemson's DC, that's when Dana and those guys, like literally, I think they put 70 on, on Clemson, different Clemson back then. So Kevin Steele ends up being the identity of Auburn really from the moment he's hired. If you go back and you look at there's, there's a, there's a perfect slide of offensive regression. And then those offer, like I, I last year and I don't, this isn't really my sort of edge of the, of the business, but like you talk about grading defenses and like looking at, at units. I thought Auburn's defense was as good as anybody's for most of last year. And then you started going, you, you would go back and you'd be like, Oh damn, like this is a defensive football team. This is the, this is the dominant note that this program puts out. And the boosters just couldn't live with that because Gus by virtue of one crazy year had teased his buy up up to Kirby smart levels. And so the, the growing consensus on the planes was He's not going as crazy as we are. I think you're absolutely right about that. He doesn't. And I will say this. He didn't want to change. He didn't want to change some things that were pretty obvious on offense. And once Bo Nix was not, once Bo Nix was realized to be a good serviceable quarterback in development and not the next thing in development, I think that's when they just kind of lost their minds and realized if we, if we screw around and go into next season and he has an eight or nine win or nine or 10 win season. And one of those wins is Auburn or Georgia. We can't get him out. So we have to eat that. We have to eat that huge amount of money and do it now. So that that's roughly what they were aiming at. Well, and, and I think unfortunately for, for programs like Auburn and Tennessee and Texas, I think the reason Herman stayed is that there's not a lot of good candidates. Like I look at Dan Mullen and what he did instantly at Florida and you talk yeah. about sort of being just crazy enough. Right. And he, He's just crazy enough. He's got some Dabo to his game, like, you know, Jimbo. Like, he's, he's just crazy enough, but he's also a brilliant football mind. I don't think there's enough of those guys out there. If I'm Tennessee to make a move, I mean, that's why Herm, they didn't get Meyer, so they stuck with Herman. I actually think, right. that's, I think that's a shrewd business decision on their part, even though 
you know, like, like you said, half the boosters hate the guy. Uh, to me, that's where I think Auburn finds itself and, and Tennessee to some degree as well is be careful what you wish for. If you, if you get rid of a guy now, I don't think anybody believes Jeremy Pruitt is the answer. No, Gus. Meanwhile, Gus, meanwhile, is winning 67% of his games every year. And you, you bring up a good point. Tennessee is actually smarter than Auburn in this scenario and that they at least are holding Man, Now keep in mind, there's some things on the horizon we don't know about with Tennessee. So it actually could be worse for the moment on Monday morning at, you know, nine, whatever in the morning, Tennessee looks marginally smarter than Auburn because Auburn, this isn't really a buyer's market. You know, I, I think when you look at those top line candidates, most of them are actually geared towards staying out of the SEC, which is, I mean, this is really like a Haley's Comet situation of candidacy. You know, by and large, the, the guys that, that I would take off the board, the Campbells and the Fickles, they have kind of signaled it quietly, like, unless it's, unless it's actually Alabama or something of like, you know, Florida, maybe like we don't know. I don't want to get involved in this. Like, you know, those guys are going to sit out, maybe see what Michigan does, maybe see what like, you know, does Ryan day go to the NFL? And if not, they're going to hang tight. I, I fully expect now Matt Campbell and Luke fickle to be at their jobs next year. I've gotten calls from boosters asking about candidates. Yeah. You know, Hey, what's going on with this candidate? What's going on with that candidate? I, you know, I'm assuming that there has been some some overtures to you in your career about, hey, this I really like this guy. I know you really like that guy. Can you push yeah. it for me a little bit? Like the, I, I know we don't. I don't want to go into the USA Today former Tennessee athletic director conversation, but um, I, I do think there's there, there's plenty of that that goes on, and I think people sure. will be sho- I, th- I think people will be shocked at that. Yes, I mean it, it's I guess it's called horse trading. If you're looking for like an old colloquial statement, uh, it, there's a lot of just sort of open evaluation that goes on. And and I have been asked before by people at, in athletic departments, you know, why why do you like so and so? What I've tried to divorce myself from in the recent years is not really attaching myself and saying, well, I like this coach. Um, on a personal, more media level, like we have seen so many times, you know, Art Bryles was a media darling. He was a media darling. We all wrote fawning pieces about Art Bryles. One thing that this industry will teach you over time is that uh, everyone's an imposter until proven otherwise. And in any other day, they can still prove you that they're that they're an imposter. So you have to be very careful about who and what you endorse. So what I try and do is just trade more raw information because I think personal preference in the media when you're trading in these circles can, can really bite you if you're not careful. All right, Aaron, you got anything else for Steven? I don't think so. Very lightning conversation. I haven't gotten a chance to talk to Stephen before, so it's a treat. Yeah, he uses a lot of big words. We do appreciate we do appreciate that, Stephen. Banner Society, of course, is the website. Please check it out. Stephen Godfrey, always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Stephen. Special thanks to Stephen Godfrey, of course, from Banner Society for joining us. A guy I've known for a very, very long time. Lives here in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, Aaron, I okay. So it's your first time talking with him first of all just your impressions of talking with the man of you know also don't see it on zoom but he's like six foot five too like he's just a huge dude so I think I'm six too so we fall in the same category super interesting this is going to be a really weird comparison probably to you but he gives off I would always joke when um Andy Ludwig Andy Ludwig was at Vanderbilt that he is like a mad sports scientist. He's kind of like in his office, just like pouring things in test tubes and like seeing what's going to work. <laughs> Steven gives off like mad scientist sports vibes to me. Yeah. It's, it's hard to um, like, I've done a lot of radio with him and a lot of shows and it's, it's hard to like, you'll ask him a question and you're not a hundred percent sure how many different topics his brain is going to land on. In, in 
in that process. But that's why I like talking with them because what happens is, is I end up thinking of three or four things that I hadn't really thought of or, Hey, that's a good discussion point. Like he's just, he's just a, a great interview and, and love talking with him. And um, just thought we'd bring him in because he's, he's so attached to the coaching searches that we can, uh, and he's so in, in, inside these programs. Again, I think the, def- I think he's written the definitive recruiting story of our generation on, on SEC recruiting. If you go read the Bagman story uh, for Banner Society, SB Nation, Vox, I don't even know what company it is anymore, but go, go check out the Bagman story. It is, it is sort of the definitive uh, work of journalism around, you know, the dirt of, of SEC recruiting. So um, I always love talking to him. It's extremely interesting. And I had read that when it came out um, before, you know, having any first degree or second degree connection to Steven and then reread it again today. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, that one will make your wheels start turning if they were not already. So I, we are taping this on, on Monday morning. Uh, I hope everybody has a great holiday. Um, Don't, don't go spend too much time indoors with large groups of people. Um, But I, I will say this, I have until 4 p.m. on Monday to cast my Heisman ballot, and I still have yet to do it. I still have no clue. So, Aaron, if you were giving me advice and you were looking around, my first question is, Najee Harris, Mac Jones, or Devontae Smith, who is the most important player at Alabama? And then, number two, what would your three people be if you had to submit a ballot today for three people to be on your Heisman ballot? What would you do? Oh, that's so hard. I understand why you have not submitted it yet. Don't you like when I pause? Because you know I'm actually thinking. Um, Kyle Trask is still really high up there for me. It's when you look at this. I mean, regardless of if you're in Alabama's system or not, Najee Harris and Devontae Smith are just insane. I personally think that Najee Harris is a more is a. I would if I had to pick out of Alabama, which I know it's not gonna work like that but you're making me pick it, it, it picking, might, it, but it might though <laughs> i i mean you know <laughs> i'm picking harris out of that group i i it's just the consistency of him showing up the way he shows up and he can whether or not the play goes down the way it was intended to he still seems to fit find a way to figure it out hit him and kyle trask would be my top two and i keep going back and forth about what order i would put them in and i know that's a lot of people would, you know, wave the Devontae Smith flag in my face right now. And I hear you, but those are my top two. And I have a hard time putting them in order. I think I go Harrison and Trask and then Devontae Smith. Okay. That, that's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that ballot. What's I am not, I'm not, I'm not allowed to tell my ballot. Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting. And, until, but next week on the episode, I will give you my complete rankings and expl- explanation as to why I voted the direction I did. This is by far the toughest decision I've ever had to make a, as a voter. And it's really just a way for me to humble brag about the fact that I'm a Heisman voter. So, I mean, nothing you do is subtle to me, Braden. I, I know when you're bragging and I know when you're trying to act like you're not bragging, but you're still bragging. Yeah. It's not even a humble brag. And frankly, I don't give a shit. It is a, I'm just, it's like a straight old fashioned in your face brag. Like, yeah, I'm a Heisman voter. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. And it's pretty cool. And I, and I take it very seriously. It's like the highest honor I've, I've received in my professional career. So I take it very seriously, you know, I'll brag about it a little bit. That's, that's fine. That's it's special. You brag about stuff that doesn't matter sometimes and I'll let you know, but this is not one of those times. (laughs) Number two on the (laughs) list is getting to spend uh, all this time with you on a podcast. It's number two. I know there wasn't a tiny ounce of sarcasm in that. Uh, It's Christmas. You gotta be nice to me. 
Got any holiday plans? What are your holiday plans? So time with the brother. Yes, I may or may not have last minute booked a flight um, to Montana to go skiing. I picked the airline that is the most spaced out. There were a ton of empty seats on it. I picked one in the very back window, not near anyone. So don't harp on me for the social distance thing. However, I'm in the hottest bed for COVID in the world right now in Tennessee. I'll be way safer in Montana. I'm going to go out there, taking my brother with me. We're going to go skiing, hiking, snowboarding. Can't see my parents because of all of this going down, but we feel like we feel like we're getting close to being in the clear. So hopefully I'll get to spend the next holiday with them. Just take all that Rona out to Montana with you, man. Just, just spread it all over the place. Just get it all over them. (laughs) There's there in Montana. You're by default, socially distant. Montana's I'd love, I would love to go hang out in Bozeman. I'd go hang out. Have you been before? I've never been. I would love to go live in Montana. I would do it in two seconds. I'm really excited. My camera's already packed. I can't say that I'm totally packed, but my camera stuff is already packed. Yep. So that was my top priority. Well, I, I know there's a lot of stuff we could have analyzed how great the SEC game was, but this is a holiday pod. So, uh, you know, excellent showing by the Florida Gators, but Alabama's too big. They're, they're going to smash Notre Dame. They're going to smash Clemson. They're going to win the national title. But we got lots of time to discuss all of that. So next week we'll come back. We'll talk Heisman Trophy. We'll preview the college football playoff. Um, Texas A&M, we can discuss that as well at some point, but, uh, this is a holiday pod. So everybody enjoy your holiday, man. And happy, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, the Festivus for the rest of us, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate, just en- enjoy it and try to just say goodbye to 2020. <laughs> the only thing I'm sad about is that Sam Pittman was on like our tentative rundown of things we wanted to talk about and we didn't get to him, but we're going to, we'll do it for new year's start the year off the right way. There you go. We'll, we'll lead with Sam Pittman. Yes. <laughs> on our new podcast. Uh, Aaron Dugan, where can people find you? Um, Aaron underscore Dugan on Instagram and the Aaron Dugan on Twitter. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Braden Gall. Thank you all for listening. Have a great holiday week. This has been Fringe Element on the 440 Sports Network. Peace. Peace.